0: Jack and Sagan met at the local Zen center. They do day-long sits at their temple in Bloomington. And what cracked me up about Sagan is that the one time I did a session there is that, like, he'll just... (laughs) You think of an expert as this person who sits perfectly and, like, doesn't struggle and is totally... But, like, Sagan will fall asleep. You know, he's just, like, falling asleep on his cushion and just, like, totally bobbing. Which cracked me up. I don't
1: know why I thought that was so funny. He was just a great person to sit next to. Eventually, Jack invited him out to coffee. They became friends, talked about language, went on lots of walks in the woods. Then, one day, Sagan asked Jack to help him out. He needed a ride. He was going to have to witness something. What that was, and what it meant for their friendship, coming up after this on Interstates. We're devoting the whole episode this week to a story about a friendship between two men, Jack and Sagan, as told to me by Jack. We're going to just jump in, but I do want to mention this story is in part about a federal execution. It's all experienced secondhand, but if that's a topic you or someone you're listening with might be sensitive to, you should just keep that in mind. Okay, here's Jack.
0: Basically what happened is one day, Jenny, is my girlfriend, was on a trip out west and she got a call from Sagan. It was early in the morning and that's unusual. Keep in mind, like Sagan and neither of us have smartphones. We both have flip phones. Like we would set up our appointment via email. So there wasn't a whole lot of need to communicate over the phone. And so I think that's, he didn't actually have my phone number but he had Jenny's phone number somehow because I had called him from Jenny's phone number at one point. So he called Jenny and Jenny's like on the west coast on a trip and she's like, Sagan? And he was like, "Well, is Jack there?" And she was like, "Well, I'll tell, I'll give, I'll have Jack give you a call." So I called him, and he was—he basically said, "Well, the—they've actually set a date for this execution. Would you give me a ride to Terre Haute? I would really appreciate that." I was like, "Yeah, of course. I would be happy to help." I think he was just, he was like, I've never done this before. I don't know if I will be in condition to drive back.
1: Do you wanna just tell me about, you know, coming to Bloomington and how you met Sagan?
0: <laughs> well, I took a couple of years off of singing. For many people, you know, what they do is they start school, They do their undergrad, and then they go right into their master's, and for many reasons, that was not my path. After my undergrad, I went on this year-long trip. I did a Watson fellowship, which was not classical singing-related at all. I was interested specifically in communities where singing was something that everybody did, and it was something that was around every day. Basically, I would say that year is well encapsulated in the two or three months I spent in the Congo. I spent 40 days living with hunter-gatherers in the indigenous folks of the rainforest. They yodel, actually. They do forest yodeling, and it's really, really, truly amazing. I was lucky enough to be there when it was very much still a living tradition. You know, the three-year-olds were doing polyrhythms and yodeling and just really, really, truly amazing. They're dealing with all sorts of other problems. Like deforestation is a real issue for them because if there's not a forest, there's no yodeling. You know, there's no culture. It was very interesting to go because I was way in over my head. I'm not an ethnomusicologist and I'm outdoorsy, but I don't have, I have never been a hunter gatherer. So that was an interesting experience because basically the way that I tell it is I end up sitting on a log for about 40 days picking worm larvae out of my feet. It was a lesson in suffering <laughs> and, also, and, and it was also really amazing because I was able to experience the world without so many of the pressures that we live with and don't even know that we're living with them, like materialism and consumerism, and also this sense of me and identity. And to some extent, those things didn't really exist there. After I had that experience that year, I came back home and I, you know, I was like, okay, well, I think I do want to do the the classical music track, which just seems so at odds with what that year was. And so I've lived in Chicago in this nasty apartment with my buddy Robert for a year and auditioned. Those auditions didn't go very well. I wasn't singing all that well. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm done with classical singing. And so I moved back home to Atlanta for a couple of years. I was working in a restaurant, I saved up some money and was also really unhappy. And because I had a professor in undergrad that had such a big impact on my life, he happened to be a Zen Buddhism professor. And um, you know, when I was 18 and also really unhappy coming to college, I think I was starved for like, I wanted to find a way for whatever reason, he represented that to me. And so when I was in a similar position, you know, years later after college and after my traveling experience and I was unhappy and I thought, well, let me give the hardcore Zen thing a try. And so I went up to, there's a tiny monastery up in Wisconsin that I don't know how I found, but Wisconsin's where I did my undergrad. And so I found this new Zen monastery that was running on a traditional Japanese schedule Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had some meditation experience, but I had never done the traditional like session. I don't know if you're familiar with session, but I wasn't, but I decided I was gonna go. And I emailed the roshi, and I was like, can I, can I come do this thing? And um, he was like, yeah. He asked me how much experience I had and I was kind of worried he was, wasn't gonna say yes, but I went and did that and that was, really <laughs> was a really, rude awakening. Sashin is like, it depends on the, the the tradition that you're working with. It's a week-long intensive where you're spending the vast majority of the day in, you know, seated meditation. I was thinking, okay, Zen is this very, like, it's a philosophy. It's a mental practice. And, like, it's very, it's about, you know, becoming enlightened. And what I found very quickly was that it was just going to be a Practice in physical pain. I just remember I've never been in such physical pain for a week, and it was the wildest thing. It was just horrible the whole time. And it was like, can I make it through? Which I did, and at the end, it was the wildest thing it kind of reminded me of my trip. You know, I think in some ways I wanted to go on this trip because around the world, because, you know, I think I was looking, I needed to suffer some, I was looking for some kind of like suffering. And the great thing about Sashin is that you'll find it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like So, but I made it through the week. And what I found at the end of the week was this renewed interest in singing. You know, I think for so long class, like, trying to sing classically was like an exercise and bumping up against just feeling like a failure all the time. It feels like a very tight, like it's a conservatory setting and it's all about what you sound like and you can't make any mistakes. And it's a very, feels like very high stakes. And so what was nice about staring at a wall for a week and being in physical pain, somehow that made it clear to me that, you know, I actually really love singing. So after taking a long, you know, a long time off, I started singing again and it was just felt different. It was fun. I mean, I was still bumping up against the old things, but I, in a way, was more equipped to to deal with those challenges and those obstructions that I had. And so, yeah, after several more (laughs) sessions and starting to sing again in Atlanta, I I re-auditioned and the auditions went much better. I auditioned for IU and For me, it felt like I was on the periphery of the the classical world, and for whatever reason, IU represented very much the mainstream. You know, it was a very well-connected place. I could see how I stacked up against my peers. When I showed up to Bloomington, I was also just interested in seeing what the Zen community was like there, if there was one. And I was surprised to find that the community there is one of great repute, actually, nationally in the the Zen community. So that was kind of cool, and I decided I was going to go once a week. I think they had a book club. And that's where I met Sagan. I always look forward to sitting next to Sagan. He was just a very pleasant person to sit next to, (laughs) even though we weren't really talking. (laughs) And what cracks me up is that, you know, he's been a practitioner for a long time. So he's quite familiar with how to sit and sitting for long periods. And they do day long sits at at their temple in Bloomington. And What cracked me up about Sagan is that the one time I did a session there or a partial session or the full day sits is that like, he'll just, (laughs) you think of an expert as this person who sits perfectly and like doesn't struggle and is totally, but like Sagan will fall asleep. You know, he's just like falling asleep on his cushion and just like totally bobbing. (laughs) Which cracked me up. I don't know why I thought that was so funny. There he was, and he would sit through it, and then he was just a great person to sit next to. He wasn't trying to out anybody. He was just there. And I remember one time, I don't know at what point it was, but I, you know, I said, Hey, Sagan, do you want to go get coffee sometime? And it was so funny because he was like, yeah. And the way he responded sort of almost felt like it had occurred to him, too, to to want to go get coffee, which was really cool. This is before the pandemic, so we were able to go inside and sit at Hopscotch, which was great. And I remember we, I think we probably sat there and chatted for a couple hours, which was really lovely. I just, I can't, I think forming relations with people across age differences is really important. And I feel really fortunate that in my life, you know, I had, people that really I've learned so much from that didn't see me as like a kid, you know? I mean, they knew I was a kid, but they were willing to have a real relationship. For all the things I, all the time I've spent with Sagan, I don't know a whole lot about Sagan. My guess would be he's like, I don't want to offend Sagan. I don't think I'll offend Sagan, but I would, I would bet, I don't know, 70, maybe se- maybe 70, that would be my best guess <laughs> old enough to not give a crap. You know what I mean? Like he, he doesn't, He doesn't care. When you're in a conservatory bubble, you know, like IU or whatever, it can become such a toxic, loud space, I mean, in your own mind. and, And so it's really nice to get perspective from people who aren't in the bubble, but also not in that point in life. So what was nice is actually, I think once the pandemic started, we really started doing walks around Bloomington he knows a lot about birds. He's a bird watcher. He knows the tree species around Bloomington. He's quite interested in and in sort of things like that. So it was really great actually because I remember one time explicitly. I was like, "I would really like to know more about that sort of thing. Could we go on some walks and I would like to learn about the tree species around here, etc." And so that sort of became a weekly bi-weekly thing where we would just go on these long walks. And um, a walk with Sagan is funny because, you know, it's generally very slow. So we went very slowly. I got good at identifying the trees because Sagan would say, okay, this is a sassafras tree. And you can tell because sassafras leaves are really interesting because they have three different kinds of leaves. But the thing about Sagan is that like, we would then stop at every sassafras tree on a walk. And it was great because it was like, a lesson in appreciation, which is that, you know, it's like, oh, look at this sassafras tree. And then we'd keep going and it'd be another sassafras tree and we'd stop and sort of look at its leaves. And then, you know, it would be the same thing with the different kind of oak trees or the maple tree. And then we would point out the same red-winged blackbird a gajillion times. Every time we would point something, it was like we were doing it for the first time. Which was really nice, you know. It's like this is a different tree, <laughs> so it was nice to go do this sort of thing when you know whether I was in school or during the pandemic. And it was like, well, let's just go look at this tree, and then we'll look at this tree, and these very singular trees in this forest of trees. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, look at this sassafras tree. It just looks exactly the same as all the other sassafras trees that we've seen today. It was always so easy to do. And the thing is, is that like, no matter what sort of stuff I was carrying on my back, the weird personal stuff, whether stress at school, stress with whatever it is, just being 27 or 28, you know, it became very apparent that I was bringing those things to the walks. You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, okay. And... I never felt like there was some problem with that, but it just, it was, there sort of comes with that awareness that it was there. And it was nice too, to be able to put those things down and just go on a walk. I remember on one of our walks, he was, he would say, you know, oh, I have to go to Terre Haute today because I'm the spiritual advisor to this gentleman that is on death row. he's been a spiritual advisor to several different gentlemen in prison. One was like a white collar prisoner that was quite well-written. And so they were pen pals essentially. And then the other one who is the one who ended up being executed. Sometimes it's kind of foggy that how things happen. But what I do remember is that especially when Trump decided to, start doing the executions again. I think Sagan mentioned something about the possibility of, you know, his involvement was about to become much greater in this circumstance. I think part of it was that, you know, there became a discussion about, uh, well, basically what happened is one day Jenny got a call from Sagan.
1: If you've been listening, you know what happens next. If you're just tuning in, I'll catch you up after the break. This is Interstates. Be right back. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. We're listening to Jack Canfield tell the story of his friendship with Sagan. They became friends when Jack was in Bloomington. He was doing a master's degree in vocal performance. They met at the local Zen center, went on walks through the woods. Sagan was a spiritual advisor to a number of inmates in different prisons, including one man on death row. One day, Sagan called and said they'd set a date for the execution. Would you give me a ride to Terre Haute, he said. I
0: don't know if I will be in condition to drive back. So then I had a couple days notice and it was during the pandemic, I was up to absolutely nothing. I understand that it's caused a lot of problems, but I will personally and very selfishly, it was a really lovely time in my life where I had nothing to do except Whatever it is that uh, I wanted to do, which is really amazing, right? Like, what do I actually want to spend my time doing? I had a couple of days before that and I started to feel really sick, which was bizarre. Like I wasn't seeing anybody. I was worried it was COVID. I was worried I was going to get Sagan sick. I was like baffling about whether I wanted to drive him. I was like, man, I really feel ill. But I, you know, I decided to, i wore a mask, I let Sagan know. And it was a really classic Indiana summer day when we drove over there. I think we were supposed to, the deal was I was supposed to drop Sagan off at the, like behind the courthouse in Terre Haute, and at like three. And it was a pretty drive, but definitely hot, very much like a Terre Haute, which you can imagine. So we get to the courthouse and I think I'm realizing that like, I just feel terrible because it wasn't COVID. I just like, the whole thing was really eerie. It was weird. Cause it's not like I was involved. I just was been asked to be the, the getaway driver kind of thing. But yeah, I just felt really ill. We get to the courthouse and th- what was gonna happen is that like he would get picked up. It really felt like a strange, it's hard to explain. It wasn't like a crime, but it felt like there was a crime happening. You know, it's like, okay, you get dropped off here and then we'll pick you up. And there's like all sorts of very specific, like protocol. And so it was interesting when you're driving Sagan to the execution and the execution I think was set for like 7 p.m., 7.15. You can't help but think about time and the day through that person's perspective. You know, it's like, there's this time in mind and we're all kind of like, all coming to a point. And you're thinking, what would that be like to be really, truly looking at the clock and like, how you would experience time differently if your end was so imminent. I couldn't help but find that my own day and days up to that point were also framed a little bit from that perspective. So we get to the parking lot. It's three o'clock. The lawyers are saying, "Well, we don't know what's going to happen. We're going to go down to the to the prison." And if you've ever have you ever been to that prison, it's really, really, really eerie. It's very close to the mall strip, where like you know, the suburban America strip malls, and you just go uh, some flat fields, and it's right on the river, and it just is like very bizarre kind of place and so we were down the river behind the courthouse and we were just sitting in the car they're like okay well you wait here and so we pull into a parking spot and we wait and we wait and so then we get finally get word okay well they've it's getting later and later closer and closer to seven and nothing's happening um i'm I think we, you know, we were talking a little bit and uh, and then it becomes clear it's not going to happen at seven. Every hour and a half, we get a call from the lawyers giving us an update as to what's happening, like what's going to go on. Eventually, the chaplain, the prison chaplain comes and hangs out in the parking lot with us, but he's in a separate truck and he sits across the parking lot. What's going to happen is that he's going to take Sagan to the prison. What's really bizarre about it is that he's truly a character out of a book. He is very serious. What I remember about him talking is he would almost shout, but it was a very clinical shouting. It was like a shouting clinical. This is what's going to happen. Very like military you know, I couldn't help but notice that on the back of his car, there was like a big old machine gun bumper sticker. This is the chaplain of the, of the prison. So I was like, this is a wild, like, I was like, man, then trying to put it in from his perspective. It's like, I can't imagine what that guy's daily life is like. (laughs) And then, you know, so he's sitting in the parking lot with us and it's getting darker. Right. And there's nobody at the the courthouse on this weird day, weekday in Terre Haute in the summer, so we're just sitting in a parking lot, looking at nothing, and it's now it's eight o'clock. We're waiting on the Supreme Court to make a decision. They've sent a you know a request to the Supreme Court to to grant a stay. Nothing's happening. We've been there since three. We then watched this crazy summer Indiana storm roll through at like 9 p.m. We're sitting in the car, wild storm. I remember at one point we were sitting there, like maybe when the sun was setting, and Sagan mentioned, (laughs) I think he said like, have you ever seen that play? What's the play Waiting on Godot? Waiting for Godot. Waiting for Godot? I hadn't. I still haven't. But he was like, he's like, this kind of feels like waiting for Godot. I was like, (laughs) We didn't really have any food either. So we were both like, Sagan gave me his one power bar. He insisted that I eat it. Then it's like 10 o'clock. Then it's 11 o'clock. Then it's midnight. And still the chaplain's sitting in his car, his big old truck. And it's just us. There's nobody around. Eventually, I'm, you know, I lean back like I'm gonna go to sleep. And we do, we both fall asleep and we wake up at like, three in the morning to the chaplain like, banging on my car door, which totally seemed unnecessary, but he like shocked us both, both awake. And what's creepier about it is that he's wearing full protective personal equipment. So it was like, because this is the whole other thing is it's in the pandemic. Yeah. So like everyone's still taking COVID really seriously. So it feels incredibly apocalyptic because everyone's like, this is going to happen. And so he's wearing this mask. You know, the mask on top of the face guard on top of this, like, gown that he's wearing. You know, he's a shaved headed bald guy. But I remember I rolled down my window a little bit. And again, he's in his sort of like shouting very. Let me just say that I felt like it was not a particularly sensitive (laughs) way of communicating. But if you're going to, you know, if you're going to if you're going to execute somebody, I think. That makes sense. So 3 a.m., Sagan and I both get startled awake, and he's like, okay, it's time to go. And so Sagan's like, still asleep and very shakily. Both of us, I think, are kind of shaken up. And he's like, you're going to follow me down to this gas station. We're going to stop at the gas station. You're going to stop. Then once we get to the gas station, the gentleman will get out of the car. He will wear his personal protective equipment. You will stay at the gas station while I continue and I take... Uh, the gentleman into the prison and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we follow him to the gas station. Poor Sagan throws on this like really wimpy, lame PPE, and then he gets in the car and is whisked away. And I can see in the distance; it's you know really dark, except for the prison, which is lit up in a really eerie way. It's like three a.m. I'm like, well, what do I do? <laughs> like, I'm just sitting like, what happened? So. I fell asleep in that parking lot at a gas station. And then I think Sagan comes back at like eight in the morning. Somehow I basically slept to that time. He got in the car and then we started to drive back and it was really fascinating. He was quite open about what had happened and his experience and you know on the way back to bloomington he got a call from the lawyers which was really emotional the lawyers were really really quite broken up i remember that distinctively distinctly because you know you can hear over the phone it was quite dramatic and then I, we got to stay again's apartment, and I dropped him off and I went home. and that was kind of that. That was my perspective.
1: It's time for another break. This is Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. When we come back, Jack thinks about what the execution meant. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. We're listening to a story from Jack Canfield about the time he drove his friend Sagan to be a spiritual advisor for the execution of a man on death row. After the execution, Jack asked Sagan what the experience had been like.
0: He talked about going in. Remember, he had to sit for a long time with another chaplain like character. And we talked a lot about Wesley's crime. We talked about his experiences meeting with Wesley and how, you know, Wesley's last words were, you know, he very much was remorseful. And I think he apologized a lot to the family of the girl that he had murdered. And he talked about, you know, the actual experience of watching somebody pass on and in such a strange way. The whole thing, too, is that, you know, Wesley was, you know, and I'm hesitant to say too much about it just because I really don't know. I don't know the details all that much. I did my research at the time. But, you know, I think Wesley is dealing with some serious mental problems and not that that changes any of the things that he did, but I think that was partly what they were you know. trying. They were, first it was a religious thing that they were trying to get to stay. Then it was, you know, Wesley had mental issues that should prevent him from being murdered. But the whole thing was, it's like, it's very strange to connect these two independent actions together. So like, we're gonna put him, strap him down on a bed and inject him with this stuff that's going to put him to sleep. And then this horrible action that he had done 20 some years earlier. And it's interesting that he, right? Here's the connection between these two actions was him. The in theory. Yeah. There's something so mathematical about Wesley's death. Action a plus action B equals action C, which in theory equals justice. Or not justice, right? Like if you look at it from the other end of things. My personal belief is that it feels like a lot of acrobatics to connect those two things. It seems incredibly, in a way, almost arbitrary or almost, I I found myself wondering a lot, like, how do I feel about the, the death penalty? And to tell you the truth, I'm not sure that I'm entirely opposed to it. Amidst all this, I reached out to my professor from undergrad that was a Zen professor that I I still, I would consider him a friend now. And uh, I said, you know, what do you think about the death penalty? And he was like, yeah, I think some people do things so bad that they truly have forfeited the right to live. You know, and I remember reading some of those articles about stuff that people had done and I was like, yeah, I don't disagree. At the same time, you know, but it's where it's like, it's an argument, it's a discussion, it's messy because it's like, well, what, what makes Wesley different? You know, it's like, well, he had mental problems. He had had been terribly abused growing up. It's very interesting. (laughs) I felt very, in a way, I felt very fortunate to be a part of it. I also found it really fascinating to read the comments on the articles that I would read about Wesley and about you know how they were trying to get a stay and and it was just interesting to then read the things that people would have to say and the vitriol towards Wesley which again to some extent I understand but it was different in a very very small distant way to be a part of the whole experience on the periphery of what this thing is going on it It gave me a new perspective, certainly. And it's like, how do you connect these two actions separated by 20 years and then justify them? It seems like, I don't know. How old are you? 42. 42. Can you even remember? Like, can you remember something that you did when you were 18?
1: I mean, I guess I can probably... I can think of, let's see, when I was 18.
0: And it's interesting because when you turn memories, because what we're talking about here are memories, when we're talking about the past, what is the past is kind of what this becomes a discussion about. What is the past and what does it mean? What is its effect on now is basically what this discussion is about. It seems like an incredible amount of effort is being made to make the past very present It's not like he hadn't been thinking about it for a long time. I'm sure he had, you know, he was dealing with dementia and all sorts of other stuff. But yeah, it seems like a very odd thing to be like, all right, you did this thing 20 some years ago, and so now the consequences are you have to die in this very specific way at this point in time, and this is gonna make it all better. I think when you're talking about death penalty, right? Like in a lot of ways, you're talking about words or arguing over what words mean and which ones hold more meaning. And, but that's true of any any law, any politics, anything. You know, it's like, if you're going to say anything about something, it's totally reliant on other words to say more things about it, which is a circular thing, right? Because then you just need more words to, to, you know. But in this case, the consequences are life and death. Even my job was, I drove Sagan there and I felt sick. I thought I had COVID. Like, I was, I was like, man, my, like, really, really sick. It's hard to express how eerie the whole thing was. And also, like, the banging on the car and, like, Sagan being swept away in this truck. And I could still see the look on Sagan's face. You know, it's like, it was really horrifying in a lot of ways. I asked him, I was like, it okay if I like do this interview and talk about it and talk about you. And he was like, he was like, please, this was equally your experience. Like, you." It's, it's, and I remember a year later, uh, it was crazy. We were at lunch and I was like, can you believe that was a year ago? And he was like, he's like, yeah, it's hard to believe. He's like, I'm really glad. I was like, I just want you to know, I'm really glad I was a part of that experience. He was like, well, you know, you really needed to be a part of that. Like it was your experience too. I'm really glad you were there too. so much of our culture and everything that we do is sort of about distracting from your death. That's like pretty much almost all advertising. It's all about avoiding death. And so it was really fascinating. To enter in a world where that was not the case. It was very much about death and very much about this person who knew he was going to die. And he there was very specific reasons why he was going to die because he had caused death to someone else. And it was really amazing to have that opportunity. But then also to watch sort of Sagan go through it being a much older person than I am. That's presumably not necessarily, but presumably closer to death than I. Tying it back to those people in the Congo. Death is a totally different element. It's like clay. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's like, a oh gosh, I've gotten myself into some, some territory here. It's much more present. It's not that it's not present now here it is, but it's just much. More physical. It's like a thing. that you, It's tangible. It's like a thing. And it's okay. It's just a thing, just like being alive is. There's a refreshing quality about talking about it and doing it. The thing about the the Congo that was interesting is that there was one moment in particular when I was getting to the later part of my time there, which is very short, right? 40 days feels like a very short amount of time looking at it. But I could tell you right now that it felt like two years being there when you you can't speak the language of anybody. You can't even like we like to talk about how people are. We're the same everywhere, which is really true. Like people aren't different anywhere. But also like we undersell the fact how different people are, like people are really different. And so to have the common experience of like purchasing something in the store that is made of plastic, like that's an amazing like that and alone encompasses so many things that you and I have in common. But to not even have that in common with these folks, you know, and not the language and. It's hard to explain. And I remember I got really sick then in my time and I was having to make a decision. I was like, okay, I finally get to go out into the forest for a long period of time, like stay out in deep in the forest. And I really get to hear this yodeling because they do the yodeling away from their Bantu neighbors or they're like have privacy out and like, it's their element. Yeah. And I'd spent all this time trying to, to get to that point where I could be out in the forest for a period of time. And it was finally time. And I got really sick. You know, I've been warned by some folks, you know, if you get sick, you should leave because there's absolutely no, you know, if you get malaria, you might fall asleep, not wake up. You know, I'm days away from any kind of real medical care. So I remember having a decision to make where I was like, I'm either going to make this effort and go into the forest when I'm feeling really ill, I don't want to venerate myself for doing something which very easily could be painted in really terrible terms, right? Like, here I am taking food away from people who actually need it. I'm exploiting people. I mean, whatever it is. But in my own personal journey, I decided to go. And I remember really being also quite emotional about it. I really felt like that could mean I would never walk out. And I remember having that moment where I was like, I may not walk out. And I did, I went out there and I'm glad I did. But I guess the reason why I'm talking about it is because part of the whole thing with Wesley is that it's really fascinating. Like we're all captivated by this idea of execution and dying and like the finality of it and the not having the choice. But ultimately I actually think it's a really positive discussion and a really important discussion to have. Talking about things like life and death, talking about really considering these things, I think can open you up to what
1: the stakes are. Tell me what happened next with your relationship with Sagan. I felt honored in a
0: way that Sagan would ask me to help him. You know, I was like, oh, of course I want to help. You know, he lives by himself and. Bloomington and I don't think Sagan has like Sagan doesn't have a car. What am I talking about? But he became my family in a way there. And you know, recently he almost lost his vision. Like it was quite dramatic. Like he had to have emergency surgery on his eye, which was quite a big deal, and then he had to he's going to have to go back for more surgery and so basically he we've spent a lot of time together since then. And then we had one more really nice lunch before I took off for Idaho. So I'm sure I'll see him again. You know, he'll be one of those people that I want to go visit when I'm in Bloomington. But he wanted to ask one of the emails I've gotten from him recently. He was like, what are the tree species like out there? I'm not familiar with. Are they native or are they not native? (laughs) I said, I'm not sure, to be honest. So in a way, nothing's really changed. So (laughs)
1: You've been listening to a recording Jack made during his time with the Baaka people in the Republic of the Congo. I want to say a couple more words about the execution that Jack helped Sagan attend. The U.S. Penitentiary in Terre Haute houses the only federal execution chamber in the country. As Donald Trump was coming to the end of his time in office, his administration started executing federal prisoners on death row. It was the first time in 17 years the federal government had executed anyone the Trump administration killed 13 people between July of 2020 and January 15, 2021, five days before Trump left office. The federal government had just executed more people than any time since 1896. The man Sagan was a spiritual advisor for was Wesley Perkey. Wesley's execution happened just after 8 a.m. on July 16th. He was the second of three people to be killed in that first week of executions. At the time he was executed, he still had an appeal pending in the courts. When the court finally responded to the appeal after Perky had died, it dismissed it as moot. It was too late to matter. There's a lot more to be said about the Trump administration's rush of executions. One place to learn more is on a podcast that's forthcoming from the WFIU newsroom in collaboration with NPR's Story Lab. It's called Rush to Kill. The story you just listened to was told by Jack Canfield. Jack debuted as a soloist with the Boston Symphony Orchestra at the Tanglewood Music Festival last summer. He's now packing boxes at the Cotopaxi Warehouse in Salt Lake City, out by the airport. And he says he's enjoying it. I reached out to Jack's friend Sagan about this story. Sagan confirmed that he was okay with airing the story. He corrected a fact in my narration, and he very politely declined to be interviewed himself. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us, or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org slash interstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up, but first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Eobhan Binder, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luanne Johnson, Jack Lindner, Yane Sanchez-Lopez, Sam Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Jack Canfield. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. I also want to thank Airport People and Ramon Monras sender for generously sharing their music, which features in this story. We'll link to airport people on our website. Additional music comes from the artists at Universal Production Music. All right, time to sit back and listen to a place. This one's a bit longer. I think it's worth following it all the way through. I'll be back in about two minutes on the other side. Okay, now sit back and relax. was going through the car wash with our eyes closed, recorded by my parents, Rob and Suzanne Chambers. Until next week, I'm their son, Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening. Actually, I think I'll just keep being their son.